This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer with Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today I am so incredibly excited. We have our guest, Andy Switke, with us, and he's going to talk about design engineering and how that applies to the work that we're doing in healthcare today. Andy, thank you for coming on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your experience and what you're doing today? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me, Skip and uh, Dr. Mason, Dr. Lancaster. It's a real pleasure. Um, Yeah. So my background actually is as a mechanical engineer and as a manufacturing engineer, I got my degree from Stanford and wound up in Silicon Valley working on silicon when I got out of school and uh, worked at a startup for a few years. And kind of by accident, I wound up at a company called IDEO in the late 90s. And IDEO at the time was kind of the, the biggest and kind of the premier product development company in the country, probably in the world. It was about 400 people. And what set IDEO apart, aside from having great designers and great engineers, was really unlike the rest of Silicon Valley, we were trying to understand needs and then crafting a response to those needs. And typically in Silicon Valley, what we do is we have answers. We've invented this great piece of technology and we go out into the world and find out who is asking a question for which we have the answer. And it leads to a lot of wasted money and uh, startups that don't go anywhere. So the, the, the genesis of design thinking, this process of understanding needs and crafting a response sort of grew out of the out of IDEO and also the relationship between IDEO and Stanford University. So many of my colleagues at IDEO also teach or taught at, at Stanford. So I teach the manufacturing depth sequence in mechanical engineering. I'm part of the design group here and have taught at the D school, um, which is sort of like a, it's like the biz school, but for designers. And um, so I, I did that for a long time. I wound up in healthcare, mostly working with poor and vulnerable populations. So I do a lot of work uh, both in uh, sort of clinical settings, but also do a lot of work in social determinants of health, housing, transportation, food access, and so on. Um, and I think a lot of the work that I do in that population translates very well into other populations. I think everybody sort of has variations of the same need. So most of my work is in healthcare, uh, lots of work in um, uh, sort of different corners, uh, side pieces of the uh, healthcare industry. So that's my background. Once again, Andy, thank you very much for being here. Tell me a a little bit, how did, what type of design engineering or, or design management are you doing now in healthcare you know, it's, you know, in manufacturing, it's it's pretty obvious and easy to to imagine what that involves. Tell us a little bit about what you do in healthcare. Sure. I, I think of uh, design of a thing, you know, designing, say, a, a syringe, an auto injector. There's a certain amount of uh, like, what is the need? There are certain physical traits that we have to think about. Uh, viscosity and pH and, you know, how fast you want it to inject and whether it's going to be administered by a healthcare professional or it's self-administered. We have to think about all of those things. 
And then when you go to make it, you have to think about making it at scale. And there is kind of an orchestration, there's kind of choreography of all the different pieces that have to come together. The same is true whether it's a thing or a digital service like video visits or whether it's some other kind of service. The work I'm doing right now has been a mix of digital services, but I'm also working on designing and building the innovation hub for the long-term care and assisted living industry. And, you know, understanding needs starts with like, who, who are, who works there? Who lives there? Uh, where does the funding come from? And to a certain extent, it's an evolution of design thinking from thinking about individual needs to thinking about system needs. So the work I'm doing right now is big, messy, chaotic, but what will eventually emerge from it are things that we're going to try, things that we're going to build, and uh, things that we're going to do to try to change the system. So although in making a syringe, you're orchestrating supply chain and manufacturing partners and so on, here it's it's a little different. We're integrating payers, providers, uh, software developers, uh, UI designers, and and yet they all, they both have the same kind of a orchestration that has to happen to them. So talk to me a little bit about your process for evaluating, uh, I guess, the, uh, evaluating what the needed design is going to be. So a lot of times, you know, I think you mentioned earlier, somebody will come to us with a piece of technology that they think will solve a problem, or you know, maybe it's somebody even up at the, the highest level of the organization wants us to put a piece of technology in to try to solve some particular problem. Um, so that, that's one scenario I commonly get is, is the CMIO trying to implement maybe a solution that nobody's asking for that's actually going to be using it. And then other times I will get uh, a request for uh, some build from the user and our team will build it thinking that they know what the user had in mind. And when we put it out there, there's a, a pretty big mismatch of, of what the, the the build team built out versus what the user actually was requesting. Talk to us a little bit about you know, those issues and then what your process is for, for making sure that you get what the user needs. Sure, I, I think this happens all the time. Clients come at least uh, you know, on the other side, clients come all the time and say, we really need, you know, we want to develop an app to do this thing, or we want to redo our lobby to make it more inviting. And the typical kind of design approach is to say, like, are you sure you need a, a, you need an app? Are you sure you need to redo the lobby? Like, what do you, what is the problem that you're trying to address through some sort of change? So often we use qualitative methods to try to understand the different positions of the stakeholders, so whether it's patients or staff, nurses, physicians, whoever it is in this environment, we try to understand like what's going on, what are what's the root of the problem. And sometimes the root of the problem leads to an app or a redesigned lobby. Sometimes it can be very surprising. I, I just have wrapped up a lot of work with uh, that Santa Clara County Housing Authority. And one of the big changes we made was very small. It was a single piece of paper with a, a color. And it turned out that if you get a housing voucher, you get this giant sheet of papers and people don't realize that there's a deadline. There's a 90 day deadline. If you don't find housing in 90 days, you can lose your voucher. And 
people were losing their vouchers because they didn't realize that. So we printed that on a neon green piece of paper and put it in the front. And rather than a lot of other systems that had been thought about, like, how do we address this? How do we remind people? And we need an app and we need their text. And it was like, you know what, if we, we found by talking to people that if we made it bright green, people noticed it and they saw the text that said, you have 90 days. And that eliminated, essentially eliminated the problem. Yeah, um, I, ahead, I get Jake. similar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's just, I, I think what you do and what I and or try to do is is in a lot of ways similar. I get a lot of requests for a specific tool within our electronic health record system. A lot of times somebody will ask for a new alert um, to solve a problem and I'll, we'll try to do the same thing if asked exactly why do you, what do you think you're going to accomplish with this alert? Why do you need this particular type of alert? Um, and try to steer them to the right, to a, to a solution, but to a one that fits the workflow a little bit better than um, maybe what they were envisioning. Um, knowing that maybe they just don't know what tools are available um, mm -hmm. to them at yeah. that point. Yeah, I, I, there's a, a sort of a dumb joke about how many designers does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, does it have to be a light bulb? So, you know, we're, we're yeah. open to whatever this, the, the solution is for sure. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about in healthcare about changing, you know, changing a whole healthcare delivery process. And and, and as we talked a little bit about um, before we started recording, you know, one thing that's going on in in the country and especially here in the South, and it's affecting all of our hospitals is we have a nursing shortage, and but we're we're having to take care of the same amount of patients almost we're, we're not quite back up to pre-covid numbers but we're having to take care of those same amount of patients with a resource that is limited now and it's less than what we're used to so we're trying to think how can we how can we deliver that same high quality care with a, a resource, you know, one of the main resources that you need that is now very limited. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wish I could say, all right. And, and, and give, give us, <laughs> give us the give answer. Us the answer. <laughs> okay, you ready? Wait, <laughs> you dropped out down. for a sec. Uh, so I, I'm going to talk about a couple of analogs to to this problem. I think. Uh, one of the first projects I worked on after I left IDEO a few years ago was designing a healthcare system for healthcare high utilizers in the Pacific Northwest. So these are the 5% who consume 55% of healthcare dollars. They're a very difficult population. Um, just so many things are are difficult with them. You know, it's a multiple, they got comorbidities and uh, there's a lot of about an 86% likelihood of a uh, behavioral health diagnosis, uh, a lot of addiction, and the kinds of things that, you know, that have been tried, uh, like through Camden Coalition, New Jersey, and, and a few others, um, requires a, a huge number of resources to be kind of piled on. And it's not a sustainable or scalable kind of system. So we have to think about uh, almost like like zone defense rather than kind of man-to-man -man defense. And I think, um, so 
figuring out like it's an it's an analog in this very challenging population that might also work for other kind of less uh, critical populations. The other analog is um, so I'm a I'm a beekeeper. And if uh, and I was in my hives this morning and if you open your hives and you look inside and you see all the bees are busy. They, you know, busy as a bee, they are, they're all trying, you know, moving with purpose and intent. And if you look really closely, mostly they're not doing very much. They're, they're, they are doing things that are checking whether their neighbor is in the hive. They're just kind of walking around. They're making sure everything's okay. Is everything okay? Is everything okay? But they have a job and they're doing it with purpose. And I think, uh, you know, when I look at, at, in healthcare, at what happens in hospitals, like if you if you follow a patient and the interactions that patients have with healthcare providers, uh, everyone is working with purpose. Everyone has a job. Everyone is doing the thing that they are supposed to do. They're doing it diligently, and yet it is not adding value. It is it is pointless often, and uh, and there are people who check up on the thing that happened with the patient in order to make sure the thing that happened with the patient happened with the patient. And it kind of, go, it's this perpetual cycle. And there are tools like, this is where we bring in lean manufacturing to look at value value stream mapping and, and the tools of lean to try to understand, like, are the busy bees in healthcare, are they providing something that is actually helping to deliver quality care to patients? And I think the answer is that there's an accretion of uh, uh, concern and worry and um, kind of like covering all your bases, like let's just have another person go check, but it's really not adding value. So I think kind of taking a hard look at at where those inefficiencies are happening, the things that are masquerading as as value add, like I think we can we can do the same quality care with a lot less of the kind of this this busyness. So maybe I, I, I might pause there and see if that well, <laughs> if no, I've made that, anyone I mean, mad yet. <laughs> no, that makes it that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, rather than saying, okay, we need to to redesign this this whole process and this whole system, maybe we need to look for the the current waste. And I use the word waste or muda, you know, as yep, the Japanese sure. like to call it. Look for the waste and and, and try to you know, remove that. And, and in doing so, we may find out, you know what, we're able to do a whole lot more with what we have just just by doing that rather than this whole new redesign process. Yeah. And I think there are two pieces to that that I think are really important. One is that there's no blame for the current situation. That is, when I go into factories and I look at what they're doing, there is no blame for the current situation. It, it is what it is. It happened however it happened. The other is uh, sometimes called safety in the workplace, which is that you can you will not efficiency your way out of a job that doing better that that the, this job that, you, you know, you have been doing that we sort of figure out isn't adding value. It doesn't mean that you are going to go away or that you, what you were doing was not important. We are we have found this Muda. We need to turn Muda into something positive. So you're going to do a different thing. And so no blame for the current situation. And. Uh, safety in the workplace, I think, is really important. Yeah, uh, that is very interesting. We we recently had you know, a few people from Skip's team follow around our nurses and see where they were spending the majority of their time, and so we're we're looking at those areas and trying to see where we can you know, make them more efficient. Um, but one thing we did not do is look at where they're spending their time and determine 
are those I, I think we assumed that everywhere they were was valuable their time was being spent in in each of those areas was valuable and contributed to the overall care of the patient but i think to take it a step further what you're saying is we need to look at those those areas and say okay they're spending a lot of time here is what they're doing here even valuable to the overall care of the patient um that's that's one step further we haven't done mm -hmm. there's a there's an another analog with iso 9000 which is you know one of those benchmarks of quality having quality systems and so on and uh, I had a production manager many years ago when I worked in a factory in Singapore who said, look, you know, you engineers, you tell us, put a donkey in a bag and ship it to a customer. That's what we do. Whether it makes sense or not, like that's what the spec says. That's what we do. So you have staff that are doing jobs that are required or mandated and they're doing them well. They're doing them diligently. But it's like you need to take a step back and like, do we really need to do that? And I think starting in a sense, tabula rasa, what do they have to, what, what do they need to do? And then take a bunch of this other stuff and sort of shove it off to the side. Um, I, I think, you know, there's an, there's an interesting thing too with practicing at the top of your license, which we hear about a lot, that nurses should practice at the top of their license. So maybe they shouldn't be drawing blood or maybe they shouldn't be taking medical histories or maybe they shouldn't be. Uh, and, and so there is kind of a fragmentation, you know, do you hire uh, less or lower certification workers to take on those sort of more routine things or, or to enable the nurses to do more nursing, but how much of that is, is actually nursing. So I don't, I, I don't know that creating more categories uh, below uh, say a BSN is the, the right way to go, but it's certainly something to look at. And I think that that process of, of kind of lean and uh, value stream mapping and so on might be helpful in, in pointing out whether that's a good idea or not. Uh, that, 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 those are some things that we're, we're certainly looking at here in the Baptist system is, is how can we, how can we allow our nurses to practice at the top of their license and have some, some non-licensed people do some of those tasks that they're doing. Uh, you know, we talked about, we were talking about pharmacy, uh, you know, a, a large, large percentage of a nurse's time on the floor is spent going to what we call the omni-cell. That's where all the medicines are, are kept and, pull, and taking them out. And, and when you have six, seven, eight, patient, eight patients who are taking 10 different medications, right. you know, of, it takes them three hours out of their shift just just giving giving medicines one time and then if the patient has to have them at the end of the shift so we're talking about maybe having you know pharmacy technicians on the floor who can be doing that and, and i'm mm -hmm. not saying that's that's not, not value added work it, it is it needs to be done but it just may not need, need to be done by a nurse what, what are right. your thoughts on that jake yeah no i mean you know, that, that's certainly a lot of what we've uncovered with the, you know, that that pilot of following around nurses and seeing where they're spending their time. They're, a lot of it is is walking, walking in the halls to get a new medication. Um, so looking at ways to maybe we can move the medications closer to the bedside where the nurse wouldn't have to walk as far. Um, you know, kind of simple things like that. But would would love to hear Andy, you know, your thoughts on on the work that you've done with healthcare systems. Um, so far, what, what were some of the design challenges that you found or some of the success stories that you've had 
uh, where you've been able to go in and find this waste and, and improve it to a better process? Um, so to just to be fair, I, I'm my I don't typically go into health systems in order to make them more efficient. I'm usually there as a designer trying to either create a new thing or to fix a set of uh, sort of hard to wrap your head around problems um, or, or where the or where the problems are kind of uncertain. So uh, uh, just to give you an example, I did a first round of uh, design uh, video visits for Stanford Healthcare uh, back in 2015. So it was the early days of, of video visits. There were plenty of startups that were selling systems that could uh, do video visits. The the uh, the benefit to to client of clients to patients was a, a little bit murky at the time. Doctors were reluctant to do video visits, but you know talking to patients who talking to a patient, for instance, who lives maybe 30 miles from Stanford with a broken ankle and has to figure out like how to come to Stanford for care uh, with a broken ankle, can't drive, you know, and then comes in, the doctor spends, you know, 10 minutes looking at the patient says, great, see you in six weeks, uh, right? All of that could be done by video visit. Um, the the pandemic has has, as we all know, has made video visits a real thing. Uh, when I finished up that project in 2015, we hoped to have 30% video visits by 2020. And I came back for a second round of uh, video visit design, kind of the more complicated cases at Stanford. And uh, that was about 1% in February of 2020 and 90% in April. So, you know, things <laughs> things have changed a lot. And figuring out how to do these things efficiently and effectively um, kind of solved itself to a certain extent. I think physicians knew uh, knew what they needed to do to care for patients through this new medium. And I think patients had to figure out how to interact with doctors in this new medium. Where I find it interesting, and maybe this is the source of your question, is like, we have the it's this ceremony of like getting a bottle of wine at a restaurant there's the whole uncorking and then the presentation and the sipping and like and uh, we have a nurse who you know and an ma and then a nurse comes in and then you know there's a bunch of talking and then they leave and then there's all of this stuff and now what we have is i have a black screen and suddenly there's a doctor yeah so what happened to all that other ceremony what happened to that uh that the the systems that we knew so well and can we, like we live without it now, do we still need that in person? Can we get away without having all of that? Can we automate some of that? So I think the pandemic has had some bad things about it for sure in healthcare, but I think this is one of those things where it gives us the opportunity to look at what has shockingly worked well in the pandemic and see how we might bring that into the, into the, like the new normal. It's like, like doing, not, away, doing away with the cork and having a screw cap. Yes, <laughs> that's, you, that's a bad analogy. <laughs> yeah, and the, the idea of that ceremony of just like unscrewing the cap and then like, do you smell the cap? And then I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Some things just don't translate so well. Yeah, but the video is, is interesting. And, and we all I mean, I think every healthcare system in the country adopted telehealth you know, overnight or within a week. Um, but I would say that probably not everybody does it 
as efficiently and as well as as maybe some others that are better designed. Um, you know, we certainly had had challenges early on, and we, we probably have a different workflow than those of you at Sanford. And you know, it would be interesting to see as you were going through the design process, what were some of the challenges you had, um, what were some of the things you had to change to make it a, a better overall process for the the patient and and the physician that's that's doing it. Yeah, I, you know, I I hate to say it, but the the systems, especially for the larger healthcare systems, the the system that gets in the way more than anything is the EMR. And uh, I'm going to say some things that are unpopular about Epic, but I think the same is also true of Cerner. Like, uh, you know, they exist they in in this realm where they were billing systems, and now we're using them for interaction and they are just unresponsive to the needs of this of the healthcare providers or the and the patients you know maybe they're good for billing but trying to get a video screen in the window of your emr took uh i untold millions of dollars for everyone wow. and every every instantiation of these emrs is a little bit different so now everyone is paying millions of dollars it's it is the least efficient, most troublesome part of the whole thing. So now I can I understand needs because I've interviewed a lot of people and I've aggregated and I've looked at analytics and so on. And I'm like, here is the thing that is going to have the biggest bang for the buck um, in terms of patient and physician experience. And it's going to drive up your star ratings or whatever. And the IT team can basically say no. Uh, because it's going to be too hard to do, or it's going to be, you know, there's some, somebody's worried about HIPAA or, you know, whatever. I, there's always a reason not to do something. So I think in many cases, there it, it is the technology that we've already adopted. It just makes it impossible to make any forward progress. The other is that we, you know, healthcare, like the legal profession, is often very risk averse. So, you know, if you, if what you have is maybe not very good, but it's not, you know, causing people <laughs> to get sicker or die, like maybe you don't want to touch it. Um, and I think that leads to this stasis that that has led to so many sort of crummy experiences out there. I, am I answering your question? No, yeah, I think that 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 was great. Um, I, I certainly feel that that pain every day, um, but it, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's almost like it's a sunk cost that every system has bought into, and so it's 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 very very hard to get around. So you know, it's a it's a cert, it's a constraint in the design process for sure. Let's yeah. let's Andy, let's talk a little bit about the the human side. You know, when when you come into uh, or organization to, to try to make some change, you know, how do you, how do you convince people to, to change their way of thinking, you know, because we, you know, no, we, we you know, we, you can't touch this because this is how we've always done it. You know, this is my little precious don't what are some of the techniques you do to, to get people to change their... Uh, like a surgeon that wouldn't switch the suture. Yeah, like a surgeon who wouldn't yeah. switch a suture. And uh, yeah. For, for instance. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no, yeah, just bring that up randomly. We've never talked sure. about that. Sure. <laughs> um, there's uh, I, 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 a word that I use a lot 
uh, in healthcare, but but also outside of it uh, is nemawashi. And I learned this by doing some work in Japan. And, uh, you know, you sit around a table, somebody makes a proposal, they all, you know, fist on the table, they all say hi, and you're done. And you're kind of like, what just happened? And it turns out that someone has gone around to every single person in the room ahead of time to talk about the proposal, to get their ideas. And eventually there's, it's sort of a subtle way of building consensus and everyone feels like their fingerprints are on the, the final thing. And that's one tool that I use all the time. I did, um, I led the design team when I was at IDEO for healthcare.gov for that first instance of, um, of Obamacare. And, you know, we were doing the design, not the build side, but, but designing an easy experience often goes against what the policy people want, which is really just presenting complete information. And yet we all have the same shared goal of getting people through this application with confidence. So the negotiation, it's not really a negotiation with the policy team. The, the policy team at CMS, they want the same thing. So when I say, you know, you're giving me a definition of what an employee is, that's like three pages long. Like nobody is going to read that. It's going to stop people in their tracks. Maybe what if we, you know, how can we get people through this? Can we put it in a tooltip or in a, you know, read more about this? And they thought about it and they, they agreed that that would be the best thing. So you know, I think finding that common, we, we have a common mission and using Nemawashi to uh, build consensus around what the right thing is. Um, I'll give you one last piece, which is um, comes from engineering, which is the idea of impedance. And in electronics, impedance is the ability of a system to absorb energy. So if you have a four ohm speaker and an eight ohm cable, some of the signal bounces off and it's it, it doesn't sound as good. So understanding what your system is, what you know, Baptist health system is like, you know, you are going to have a speed at which you can absorb this. You're going to have uh, certain words that work, certain ways that you will absorb the, this new information. And we have to kind of do that impedance matching. That's a good answer. I like Nemawashi. I like that. <laughs> Andy, this, this has been great. I really enjoy everything. I'm going to I'm going to kind of wedge in a question uh, before we end the podcast, because this is just sure. too good. You know, I know you've done a lot of work with uh, with products also at your at your in your years of experience. And I remember listening to you on a podcast where I think you talked about a uh, a vacuum cleaner that y'all spent thousands thousands of dollars oh. on and on the first day that you were going to debut it it caught on fire or something <laughs> and i remember just really loving that story because it has that experimentation mindset but let, let's let's try to do a live example right now let's see how well this goes one of the All things right. that that happens in healthcare a lot is uh, a common practice and this common practice is that healthcare professionals nurses specifically uh, they use lots of needles, and uh, no surprise to that. And a uh, a byproduct of that is you have a lot of uh, needle sticks. You have nurses that uh, get themselves hurt, that stick themselves. No, no one's intentionally wanting to stick themselves, but but they do. And uh, and I've always thought about that and thought, well, there has to be a better way to design that needle to where it, it can't stick them. 
if you were going to approach that uh, just in this make believe world on this podcast right now, how would you start to approach a subject like that? Uh, you have all these people giving shots on a regular daily 24 hour cycle. But we also have a lot of healthcare professionals that are sticking themselves. And mm-hmm. and when we talk about the safety, we're not only talking about safety of patients, we want the safety of our people too. Sure. How would you how would you start to approach that from your thinking perspective? Yeah, you know, this is a this is a classic design challenge. Uh there the other classic design challenge in healthcare is uh medication compliance. You know, how do you get people to take complex kind of drug, even simple things like people are really bad at it. But the needle stick uh, problem, you know, I, I'll take it as a process question. You know, what would I do? And I think I do follow two kind of main tacks. The first is through observation. I would spend a lot of time looking at at how people are getting their syringes and needles, how they're doing their uh, the injections and how they're disposing them. And I would look at it in, uh, I would especially look at the extremes, go to a place that is doing, uh, for instance, high volume uh, vaccination clinics these days uh, are going through these like there's no tomorrow. So they're, you know, very high volume. What are they doing to keep safe? Uh, so lots and lots of observations. And then I think this is a really uh, this is a problem that has been addressed for many, many years. And there are many inventions that have both worked and not worked, mostly not worked, I think, is kind of what you're saying. And so I would mine the literature uh, for what has worked and what has made it to market and why some things have worked and some things haven't. Uh, and then I think, you know, I'm a big believer in, in analogs and in analogous observations. What are some situations that are are like this? There's something that is maybe dangerous that you, you have to handle. You know, maybe you're working in a high volume sheet metal shop with lots of like sharp shards that are flying off of machines. What do they do to protect their people? Um, so I, I think th- that's kind of how I would approach the the problem. I don't, you know, I certainly don't have the answer, um, but I think through observation and uh, looking at what's already happened in those analogs, that's probably how I would get started. Uh, hey, Andy, that was a great answer. I, you know, I just think this subject is so fascinating. If, if we just are observant in the world that we walk through, I, I see new designs on a regular basis that just amaze me. Uh, I was with my wife in a cooking store recently, and I know nothing about cooking. But I remember picking up little devices off the shelf thinking, well, that's really neat. I've never seen anything like that. They were answering a, a problem that somebody had you know, and how they designed the product. And well, Andy, this has been great. I am so incredibly thankful for the work that you do and and so grateful that you were willing to come on the podcast. And so on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, thank you so much for your time uh, and your willingness to spend some time with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you too. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Andy. Thank you.